Lord, as well in your teaching tonight through the Spirit, we pray that we would be attentive. We would pray that we hear the Word of God spoken as it came from you and not from a man, and we would hear, Father, that it is meant for us, and that we would listen so that we may carry it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 2. We are at a critical point in the book of Acts, at least in chapter 2. As we left it last week in chapter 2, we had seen the, the Spirit arrive. We had seen that as the Spirit came upon uh, the men who were in this room, in the upper room, waiting for the Spirit's arrival, He brought outward signs of His arrival. Last week I told you the, the chapter had a four-part division to it. The first two parts form a before and after view of how the Spirit arrived, produced these manifestations, and then the after effect was to watch how it affected the crowds. And we noticed that in the way it affected the crowds, these manifestations of the Spirit left two reactions within the crowd. One part of the crowd observed it and had one reaction. Another part of the crowd observed it and had a different reaction. And we'll examine those reactions more tonight as we move forward in the text. But first, I felt it was necessary as I was studying in the chapter myself to retrace our steps just a little through a very important issue that arises out of the text here in this chapter and becomes foundational to understanding the book of Acts as a whole. Uh, you'll see that more clearly as we move through the book. So I, I, without going too far off the topic tonight, I can't really examine it fully for you except to just give you a sense of why it's important. And then later as the book uh, itself unfolds, we'll see this again and again. The arrival of the Spirit here in this chapter, as you see it occur in this chapter, comes long after the men who are being affected here have come to believe in Christ. That is no longer God's pattern in the church. Today, and, and even in the day of, of the apostles, most of the time, and certainly today all of the time, we receive the Spirit when we believe. That's the promise of Scripture. So it raises a question out of the text as to why there was a delay in the lives of these men between the time they believed and the time they received the Holy Spirit. Last week I taught that the answer to that fundamentally is that God wanted to distinguish this particular day in our memory. This day, as we said already, is the Feast of Weeks. It's the day on the Jewish calendar when they celebrate a feast called the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost by the Greek Jews. And because that day was an important day, it's important to understand that the believers throughout history must understand plainly that on this day, God instituted a unique ministry of His Spirit. He chose the Feast of Weeks, to be the day in which He fulfilled the meaning of that feast by the giving of His Spirit. Beginning on this day, the one we see here in Acts 2, all believers would receive the personal indwelling of the Spirit, which we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of fire. And since that day marks such a dramatic departure from God's previous working among men, that day warranted a unique and unrepeatable display of God's power. So the day of Pentecost, as it comes out in the text here in chapter 2, starts something that never existed before in the economy of, of God's working with men. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every believer. And to mark that event, God put in place certain manifestations, certain outward signs that would forever be associated with that day. And because they're so special and because that day was so special, God makes sure that those manifestations never repeat themselves at least not in total, at least not the full set that are visible here in this chapter. 
So men received the Spirit on this occasion after they had already believed so that the day could be marked in a very special way among the believers. But following this day, believers received the baptism of the Spirit on the moment they believed. The two are one in the same moment. Now, having established that last week, and I just reiterated that here now to make clear for everyone's sake, that's the the meaning of why that day had these special manifestations. There are two exceptions to the principle I just proposed. There are two other instances recorded in the book of Acts when belief precedes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, such that the indwelling does not happen until some later moment for certain individuals. Twice we see that happen in the book of Acts. We're going to study those later, and that's why I said earlier tonight that I can't give you the full answer tonight, because I want to wait till we get to the chapters where those two exceptions take place. One of them is in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans received the gospel for the first time. And the other is in Acts chapter 10, when Gentiles received the gospel for the first time. That should remind you of something I taught on the very first night when I gave the introduction to the book. I said that the story of Acts is a story about the outward movement of the gospel from Jerusalem outwardly, geographically, until it reached Rome. And that's where the book ends. A way of showing us that the gospel was intended to spread from where it starts in Jerusalem to the whole world. But I also said that it is a story of how God's grace moves from the Jew, then to the Samaritan, then to the Gentile. Similar in that sense of moving outward from, the, from Jerusalem and from the Jew. As the gospel reaches each of these new audiences, there is yet another opportunity for God to make clear that there is an arrival of a new ministry for his spirit within each of those groups. So here in Acts 2, for example, we see God bringing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the first time to Jews. All of the men who are present here on the day of Pentecost and receive the spirit are Jews. They're all the Jewish disciples of Christ. And in this way, Scripture confirms what it says elsewhere, that salvation is of the Jews, that they are the ones who receive the gospel first. As Paul says, I preach the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But when God finally opens the door for the gospel to reach other people, namely the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, you will see in Acts chapter 8 a repeating of sorts of this manifestation of the Spirit, of a delayed indwelling followed by physical manifestations. And then later, when God opens the door for the Gentiles, that pattern is repeated again. But after that third time in Acts chapter 10, this unique delaying of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is never seen again. It's never seen again in the book of Acts and it's never seen again in the recorded history of the church. From that point forward, God has made his point. He's made it clear That the Holy Spirit has a new ministry and he's actively engaged in that ministry among believers. And there is a fourth instance of what appears to be a delayed indwelling of the Spirit. But in reality, when we get there, you'll see in Acts chapter 19, it's not actually what it seems to be. So that's even further down the road. And so we'll come back and look at how that plays out in each of those cases as we look through the book later. So returning to the reactions of the crowd, I want to go back down to the text of chapter 2. And look at where we left off last week, beginning in verse 12, just rereading 12 and 13 as we move forward from that point. We saw at that point the crowd reacting, and in verse 12, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And that's where we left off. So let's look again at the reaction 
and then go forward from here. The group of visiting Jews, these were the men who did not live in Jerusalem, but were outside the land, but they're here in town because of the Passover, and they've stuck around so they can celebrate Pentecost. Those Jews are the first group, summarized in verse 12. They recognized that a miracle took place. They don't understand its meaning, but they are not denying the reality of it either. So they see something supernatural, but they don't understand it. The second group, a group I would argue are the local Jews of Jerusalem, they dismiss what they're seeing entirely and call it merely drunk men. They do not perceive that anything supernatural has taken place. They don't perceive that God has done anything. They attribute everything they're seeing to natural explanations, to the drunkenness of these men in their mind. Both groups are unbelievers. There's no evidence that either of these groups has yet understood and believed in Christ as the Messiah. But some are responding with what appears to be an open heart, while others are responding by mocking or, or what we would assume to be a hardened or closed heart to the message. Paul explains elsewhere in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 God, how God uses this unique display of speaking in tongues to accomplish his purpose among men. It's in 1 Corinthians 14.20 and Paul, after explaining to the church in Corinth about the use of gifts and particularly about the gift of tongues, he comes to this conclusion. In verse 20, he says, Brethren, do not, be ch- do not be like children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul then concludes, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Paul quotes in his conclusion there from Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah 28.11, where Isaiah himself said that there would come a day when strangers, i.e. Gentiles, or men who are not known to the city in Jerusalem, in this case, are speaking in a, in a tongue that the people who should have known their Messiah, the Jews, cannot understand. These men are speaking in non-Hebrew tongues. They're speaking in languages that are not Hebrew. And Isaiah goes on to say that though that sign would be given, it would not result in them coming to faith in understanding the truth. Here we see the beginning of that prophecy. You see unbelievers here, the crowd in general, responding to the sign by questioning it and looking for answers. And Paul himself reiterates that that would not in and of itself be enough to bring faith, nor was it intended to edify or build up someone who was already in faith. It was meant to be a sign to unbelievers, but not a sufficient sign for faith. This is similar in some respects to Paul's argument, I think, out of Romans chapter 1, when he talks about the heavens and the earth declare God to the unbeliever. He's arguing that there is no excuse for the one who would say they did not know God existed. He is not, however, arguing that what they could see in the world around them was sufficient to bring them to faith. There's a difference between the two. I can know enough to know there is a God and yet still not know enough to know who he is, what his name is, how I come to believe in it. Similarly, the sign that was given here, this sign of speaking in tongues, was sufficient, at least for some, to know that God was doing something here. But yet it had not been sufficient for them to understand what they're to do with what they've learned, how to respond to what they've seen. It left them in a quandary. What does that 
quandary or that questioning drive someone to do if their heart is open to the message? Well, logically, you ask questions, you seek answers, you go looking for what it is this sign means. And then if it's God's purpose to bring you to faith, he will put in your walk, in your path, the answers that you're looking for. There will be a way for God to answer those questions. In order for this sign to become a means for salvation, then it must be united with understanding concerning the meaning of the sign. And so it falls to Peter now in the second half of this chapter to preach a sermon his very first one, as far as we can tell, which offers an explanation for the meaning of the sign. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter hears the crowd. He hears the snide comments from the local Jews of the city about the drunkenness of the men and so on. So then he stands with the eleven and he raises his voice. So this is clearly an attempt for him to address the whole crowd. He's preaching in the street. And then he delivers a sermon and he begins with a reading of Scripture, And effectively, though it's a probably delivered because of his memory of Scripture, it's the equivalent of someone opening the Bible, in a sense, and reading Scripture to a crowd. Now, before we examine what he says here in this chapter, let's consider the pattern that Scripture is establishing for us here. Because although I have said already, and I'll continue to say, that the book of Acts is not written as a book of theology or necessarily of ecclesiology or church practice and tradition. It was not meant to be a manual for how you conduct church, nor was it meant to be a book on how the theology of, of our faith should work. It is a history of how the early church was established. And yet, along the way, there are going to be opportunities for us to see things that are good application, that do form a pattern. This, I think, is one of them, maybe one of the best ones, in fact. Because the work of the Spirit here brought an opportunity for Peter to preach and deliver this message. And the pattern that's being examined here, that's being displayed here, of the work of the Spirit combined with the work of a preacher is classic biblical application for how we should preach the message of the Gospel. And how it is in general we should preach, period. It starts with the work of the Spirit. In all cases, the delivery of God's message for the sake of salvation, the Gospel in other words, is predicated, a successful delivery is predicated on the work of the Spirit. Jesus says this in John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here in the text you see the drawing ministry of the Spirit, so evident in the way these visiting Jews in the crowd are responding to the miracle by asking questions about what does this mean. It's as if they're just primed for someone to walk up and deliver the message to them. 
We may not always be aware that it's taking place. I'm not saying we'll be perceptive enough in all cases to, to discern who's ready and who's not. In fact, that's probably a fruitless kind of, of effort on our part if we even tried. Peter doesn't seem to be working very hard to figure out who's ready to listen and who isn't. He simply follows the opportunity up and makes a claim that's loud enough for anyone to hear. But the response is going to happen only as a result of the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here the drawing ministry is evident and we cannot make the message itself so compelling. We can't present it in such a exciting and dynamic way. We can't make it so, quote, relevant and appealing that we can substitute for the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we are not in the presence of the work of the Spirit, we don't have a hope to bring someone to faith. We may still preach in vain and we have the responsibility to preach regardless. And preach means do it in our works, do it in our, our words, do it in our life generally. But we can't make up for the lack of the Spirit. And if there is not a drawing ministry taking place, we're not going to overcome it by, by marketing or, or better tactics. The second part of the process is found in the message as Peter delivers it. Where does Peter start? With the Word of God. Paul describes this two-part process succinctly in one verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message of the gospel as delivered by the word of God. And Peter opens his sermon with a presentation of God's word. And in particular, he picks a passage that has something to say about their question or about their circumstances. I'm not saying that the word of God doesn't have power irrespective of its content, but I am saying that the content has value and meaning. And if we are understanding the needs of the hearer, we can find the right text in Scripture to address their need if we understand the text of Scripture. And the two working together are a very powerful combination. And we're witnessing here the biblical way preaching should be done. A reading of God's Word accompanied by an exposition of its meaning, followed, as you'll see in a minute, by an application and a call to the person hearing to believe based on what they've learned out of Scripture. It's a simple formula. It's never been improved upon and it should never have changed. Any other form of preaching is an illegitimate form. To approach the role or the job of preaching to the faithful or to preach to unbelievers and to not do it in this general form. Scripture, backed by exposition of its meaning, followed by an application and call to respond. If that is not the way we do it, it's an illegitimate way. We are substituting ways of men for the way God himself has established that it be done. The power of such preaching is not found in the persuasiveness of the speaker's words, but in the power of the Spirit and in the power of God's Word. That may remind you of something I said again on the first night when I said the book of Acts is really not a story about the apostles and their work. It's a story about the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And Luke himself makes a point repeatedly through the text to emphasize those two elements of power, not the power of the people doing the work. So turning to the sermon itself, Peter begins by defending the men. He makes clear they aren't drunk, as some suppose, and he actually argues it out of Jewish tradition. In Jewish culture and tradition, you did not drink wine until a certain hour of the day and as part of a meal. So if it was 9 a.m. in the morning, which is what he just said by counting the hour of the day, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. He's saying not simply the fact that, hey, it's only 9 a.m. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? He's saying it's 9 a.m. No Jew drinks this early. So you can't be accusing them of drunkenness when it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. It would not be possible, in other words, for them to be drunk, just based on the culture. Rather, Peter says, what you're watching 
is a display of behavior consistent with what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. Peter quotes here from Joel 2. And I want you to look carefully at what Joel says in the passage that Peter quotes. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to look at it carefully because this passage is hotly debated as to its meaning and as to Peter's application of it. So look carefully at it. In Joel, the prophet describes a pouring out of God's spirit upon men in a future day, future to Joel's day. And as a result of that outpouring of the spirit, Joel says, your sons and daughters, and that's your there is a reference to the Jews. So Jewish women and men, sons and daughters of the Jews that lived in Joel's day, they will prophesy, meaning they will speak prophetically about God's work. They will see visions. They will dream dreams. And then he says, accompanying this moment, there will be miraculous signs in the heavens. And all of this, he says, will take place in conjunction with the great and glorious return of the Messiah. Now, as you look at all those details in the passage from Joel, you should immediately notice that none of those things, not even a single one of them, has occurred in this moment at Pentecost. Furthermore, the things that did take place at Pentecost, like speaking in tongues, the wind, the fire, none of those are mentioned in Joel's prophecy. So there is no overlap whatsoever between what is said in Joel and what has happened in this moment. So what's Peter's point? Is he proposing that what Joel said is what just happened and we have to somehow understand how they can both be true? Or is he using the text in some other way? Well, the answer is the latter. Peter read from Joel, but this passage, by any reasonable reading of it, clearly is talking about a different moment than the one that just took place in the upper room. For those in here that were in the Isaiah class, or even if you were years ago in one of our Revelation classes, you'll know right away that what Joel is describing is the moment that Zechariah 12 describes when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the remnant of Israel in the last days of tribulation. And as a result of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all of these manifestations take place. And around that moment, you have the end of tribulation, all the sun, the moon and everything going haywire and Christ's return right after that. We studied this, as you may remember, in Isaiah. So this scene is a description of the last moments of tribulation. And Joel, as a book, is entirely about that time, about those last days. So this is a prophecy of how Israel, the nation, will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in tribulation, and as a result of that outpouring, the nation, as it's constituted on that future day, will receive their Messiah, will believe. That's how Paul comes to the conclusion that all Israel will be saved. So why does Peter choose to read that particular passage out of the Old Testament when his issue is to contend with people who don't understand what they're seeing among these men at Pentecost? Why did he link these two in his mind? What Peter is doing and this is a legitimate way to use Scripture under some circumstances. He is making a point here about how God uses His Spirit to create manifestations in men, or the principle that that can happen, and that when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on Israel in the last days of tribulation, those men and women are said to be acting in ways similar to the ways we're seeing go on here and now. And His application for the crowd, therefore, is it's not uncharacteristic or unusual for these kinds of behaviors 
to come about when God is at work. When God shows up and does something with his spirit, men do funny things, funny from our perspective. But that doesn't mean it's not God. In fact, Scripture would tell us it can be God. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's making an application of Joel, not an interpretation of Joel. That's the fundamental difference. He's saying, given what Joel has said will happen in the future, we can know something about how God works among men. And knowing that about how he works among men, we can look differently at this circumstance and see it from a different point of view. Instead of seeing it as men who are drunk, we can see it as God at work through his spirit. That's an application of knowledge, not an interpretation of the text. And as I said, that's a legitimate way to use scripture from time to time. But as you might expect, it's got to be done carefully. Partly so that you don't misunderstand the text yourself as you try to apply it. But secondly, so that you don't leave your audience thinking that your intent is to interpret the text. Unfortunately, a lot of men are doing this without trying to be careful. And I'll hear people quote passages of Scripture in defense of some point they're making in their in their preaching. And yet the text they happen to pick has nothing to do with what they're talking about. It just sounds like it has something to do with what they're talking about. And unless you know the context of the text itself, you might just blindly go with them. You wouldn't know any better. But the reality is you go back and look at the text and you realize that's not what the guy was talking about when he wrote that. Sure enough, they pulled something out of context and misapplied it. That's the danger. That's a text without context is pretext. A pretext for doing the wrong thing. A pretext for making a mistake. This is an example, though, of doing it the right way, of taking a text and applying it in a meaningfully appropriate way, but yet not trying to interpret it. So, having read God's word, now Peter turns to applying it for the sake of his audience. And this is where the, quote, preaching begins. Like all good biblical preaching, the sermon hinges, the point of the sermon, the meaning of the sermon, hinges on the meaning of the biblical text and not on human wisdom and funny stories and something else. That's another form of bad preaching I see commonly. They start like they're going to go the right way. They read the text of Scripture, close the book, and then they promptly start talking about something that had absolutely nothing to do with what they just read. It's like they were in two worlds. The proper method is read the text, expound the text, talk about it, understand it, deliver that message properly. And the turning point of the sermon for Peter was the final verse of Joel that he read. In fact, it's easy to see why he read so much of Joel in light of how much of it didn't apply, like the blood and the moon turning and all the rest. Why did he keep reading past the earlier points of Joel when Joel talks about dreaming dreams and so on? Why didn't he just stop there? That would have made his point, wouldn't it? Except that he remembered that if he goes just a little further in the text, he comes to a verse in Joel, which is actually his concluding point. Peter's concluding point. The point Peter wants to move to before he's all said and done. That point, of course, as we read it in Joel already, was that anyone who would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he is going to let that verse hang there and become his hinge for making his preaching. The only thing left if you're in the audience is to ask, well, who is this Lord? Who is it I have to believe in for all of this to be true for me? And that's where Peter starts his preaching in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, 
putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David said of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What a great preaching that is. And and not just for what it says, but as someone who tries to follow a craft of of sorts in this area, I just love the way he approached the text and how he took it apart and then used it to preach the same point that the text itself is making. And he begins by addressing the crowd as men of Israel. That's important, at least in passing, because you remember Peter. This is the man who later in the book of Acts has to be convinced that he has to preach to more than just the Jew. At this stage, he doesn't have that understanding. He is all about reaching the Jews who were intended to receive the Messiah in the first place. So he's speaking here to brethren, his Jewish brethren of the nation of Israel. And this is how it's supposed to be at this point. He's not doing anything wrong. At this stage of the of the way the church is to grow and go outward, it is for the Jew. God has not yet opened it to the Samaritans, let alone the Gentiles at this point. Only later does God do that. So then Peter begins. He names the Messiah. To the crowd who is questioned, well, how am I to respond to this message? He goes straight to the main point. He doesn't mess around with jokes and stories. He gets there right away. He says the Messiah who is responsible for stirring up this crowd by His Spirit is the Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene that you knew. And as he says, you put to death. The question on their minds would have been, how is the one who you say fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah, the King of David and so on? How is that man capable of being killed by anyone as God's son? And Peter anticipates that question, so he answers it. He says, the man that we knew as Jesus was delivered over to death first by God himself. And that's the answer to the question. Fundamentally, how is it that a Messiah, the Messiah, could be put to death? Only that God would do it. For He is God, and as such, no man could ever challenge His power. It required that the Father Himself set that course before it could happen. Peter elaborates, he says, it was the predetermined plan by God's foreknowledge. For someone who says, well, predestined is just another way of saying God knew the future. No, they're different words, and they have distinctly different meanings. There is control or determination of something, and then there is knowledge of something. They are intimately related, but they are still different. And as such, they have to be seen as different. Here in the text, predetermined means, literally in the Greek, determined by God's fixed purpose. Determined by God's fixed purpose. And foreknowledge means to know beforehand, but it means it in a very specific sense in Greek. It means in the sense of pre-planned. Knowing something before because you planned it. So... The phrase as it's written in Greek means God the Father brought Jesus his son to death 
because it was a pre-planned event in keeping with God's fixed purpose. It was to be because it had to be and God intended it to be and made it to be. Peter makes clear that God worked through the agency of sinful, godless men to accomplish this outcome, that there is both the sovereign component of determination and foreknowledge, but there was also the human agency of sin involved in the process. God is not the author of sin. He nonetheless relied on sinful men to act in accordance with their sinful desires and impulses and then directed them so that that sin would be put to work in his plan as he intended it. God intended it, predetermined it, planned it, and then worked through the agency of sin to bring it about. Now, in the end, Peter says, God brought Jesus back from the dead because, as Peter says, it was impossible for death to hold Christ. Why is it impossible for death to hold Christ? If he could die at all, why is it impossible that he couldn't stay that way forever? The answer comes to the issue of justice. Death is reserved for those who are guilty of sin and deserve death. It's the wage of sin. Jesus, as we know in Scripture, was sinless. Therefore, he could not be held in death forever. He remained there only long enough to accomplish God's purpose, and then he was resurrected. It was impossible for a penalty to be applied to him that he didn't deserve indefinitely. And then Peter quotes from several different psalms. Now, he's mixing different psalms written by David. He has pulled, though, the relevant parts of several psalms that address the outcome of the Messiah's life. These are things written about what will happen to the Messiah. So here's Peter's thinking as a preacher. Peter's saying to himself, these men have seen God at work, but they don't understand what they've seen. They're not even sure it is God. They're attributing it falsely to men's drunkenness. Then when I reveal to them that this is the work of Jesus of Nazareth, I know they're going to look at me and say, but he was killed. So I need to clear up the fact that the Messiah had to die and that it was God at work. So I'll pull scripture for that need. And then to explain to them how he was able to resurrect and what it means that he was resurrected, I will go pull some other scripture to tell the the final chapter in the story. Yes, he died, but he isn't still dead. And then finally, I'm going to pull them into a discussion around what are they to do now that they have heard and understood these things. I'm going to pull them across the line and let them know that the response they make is important and they have to consider it. It's classic preaching, classic biblical preaching. So now Peter quotes, he says, first, David said in the Psalms concerning the Messiah that he is always to be seated at the right hand of the Father and that the Messiah's flesh will live in hope because his soul will not be left in Hades, nor will his body undergo decay. Instead, the Messiah will know the way of life. Well, the first insight is to know that David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. The way Peter shows that is to say, look, Whoever this person is David's talking about has to die, but he doesn't stay in hell. He's taken out of hell and seated at the right hand of the Father. Body and soul, in other words, resurrected. And yet, as you heard in the text, Peter says, we know where David is right now. He's in the grave he's always been in, and it was in the city of of Jerusalem. So he says, that can't be the David that's being described here because we know his body is still there. He hasn't walked out of that tomb. No one's seen him come out. No one's seen him resurrect. On the other hand, Peter says, you were all witnesses to Jesus doing that very thing. And that was only 50 days earlier. These men, most of them were in the city. Undoubtedly, the city as a whole was affected by that event. You see that in the Gospels. They would have seen it. Certainly, they would have heard about it. 
So Peter's point is obvious. What you just read matches perfectly what you just saw. And yet it doesn't match what we know happened to David. So it can't be David. It's got to be this Jesus guy. The one we all just saw have all these things happen to. Now, traditionally, the rabbis had actually interpreted those verses out of the Psalms to be a description of David himself. And the myth had gone that inside that tomb where they'd roll the stone away in David's tomb, they would find a perfectly formed body that had not decayed one debt. That was the way the rabbis had come to try to interpret the meaning of this because they didn't move beyond the thought that it was David. And Peter corrects that view and says, we know that's not true. So David then is now moved out of the conversation. It becomes a conversation about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, this same David wrote about this same Messiah, this same Lord, and said he would have a place on the right hand of the Father forever. And as a descendant of David, he would have a permanent seat on David's throne. Remember, kingdoms were inherited. So they all understood that a king would expect his son to rule in his place. But there was a certain descendant who would rule forever from this throne, who would never give it up to somebody else. That meaning now is Peter's emphasis when he says this man, this descendant of David, who is said to be seated at the right hand of the father forever is the same one that David said would come out of Hades. The same one that David said would be resurrected. The same thing we just saw happen in Jerusalem 50 days earlier. He's knitting it together so that the mind that is seeking for an answer has everything it needs to put two and two together. The mind that is closed and, and, and hardened to the message and not being drawn by the spirit This won't matter to them. The obviousness of it won't make any difference. And so Peter goes on to say, David knew he was promised to have a descendant on his throne forever, and the fulfillment of that is through the Lord himself, not through David himself. And then Peter says, you've seen all this happen. And David himself is aware that the Messiah was his Lord's Lord and not himself. Finally, Peter brings his sermon to a climax. Verse 36. He says, therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. So having spoken to the truth, backed by the power and the authority of God's word, Peter gives a call for action to the crowd, beginning with a call to repentance. And then in the reaction of the crowd, you see the work of the Holy Spirit clearly evident in their hearts and in their response. It says they were pierced. And the word in the Greek literally means shocked or stunned. In Homer or in other Greek texts, that same Greek word is used to describe the sound of horse hooves hitting the ground. So it's like a a shock, a reverberating punch, if you will. That's the sense of the word. It's like somebody just knocked them over hitting them squarely with these words. The way to hear that or the way to understand that is they knew what they just heard was true, you know, instinctively, spiritually. They weren't debating it anymore. They received it. And yet the news stunned them. 
Because what it said was, they had previously rejected their Messiah and put him to death. I mean, for us, the news comes as a shock because of how it brings us face to face with our sin and with the need for Messiah and, and the urgency of all of that. But can you imagine going all of that plus having been personally present, if not personally responsible, for the crucifixion of Christ? That's the power of what Peter just said to this crowd, particularly to this crowd. And when they ask him, understandably, they ask him, what do we do about this? Maybe they're even wondering, can I recover from this, from what I've done or been a part of? Peter gives them the answer. He says, there is forgiveness available should they repent and be baptized. They too, he says, will then receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What they just saw happen to all these other men will happen to them as well. If they're willing to repent and to be baptized. Now, this close connection that Peter makes between salvation and baptism is uniquely associated with the Jewish generation of his day. I want to be clear about this because obviously this is a place in Scripture where mistakes could be made. We know that in our day today, salvation is not contingent on water baptism. It is provided by spirit baptism, but that event happens when we believe. So belief itself produces salvation through the work of the Spirit. Water baptism follows as a demonstration, as an outward sign. But I don't want to minimize what Peter's saying. He is not saying, believe so as to be saved, and oh, by the way, let's get baptized. He is saying, believe and be baptized to be saved. How can that be true? The generation of Israel that rejected the Messiah was under a special judgment, a judgment declared by Jesus himself in the Gospels. You see it in several different places. In Luke, as I remember, it comes at the end of chapter 13. When the nation of Israel, through their leadership, through the Pharisees, declared Jesus to be the devil rather than to be who he said he was as they watched him perform miracles, Jesus said to them that he was not the devil and he said that there was only one sin that was unforgivable and that was the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which was the sin that the nation of Israel, through their leadership, committed when they looked upon Jesus and the miracles he was performing by the work of the Spirit and rejected them, declaring them instead to be the work of Satan. They committed that unforgivable sin. As a result, Jesus turned to them at the end of chapter 13 and said, I am leaving to you your house, meaning the temple in Jerusalem generally. I'm leaving it to you desolate, a statement of judgment that comes true in A.D. 70. And he says, furthermore, the nation of Israel will not see Christ again until they declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That isn't going to happen until Zechariah 12, until the end of tribulation, when they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because of that singular sin of rejecting Christ's work in their day, they were under a judgment that every man, woman, and child in the nation of Israel was going to suffer under unless they come to faith and are baptized. The faith element we understand. Faith brought them into the remnant, and as the remnant, they were going to be preserved. The baptism part, though, is a little harder to understand. If a Jew wanted to avoid the judgment that was prescribed against the generation that they existed in, this generation under these, this day, they must not only believe in the gospel, but they must be baptized so as to declare themselves separate and apart from the assembly of Israel. Remember that once you're baptized into the church, you're no longer Greek nor Jew in the sense of your affinity, of your association. There is no such thing as someone in that day, having been baptized, 
to remain a part of the evil generation that was under judgment. They escape from out of that judgment. They will not be held accountable for the sin of rejecting Christ and they will escape the sin, I mean the judgment of A.D. 70. They are being called to eternal salvation by faith and furthermore, they are being called to avoid the punishment that was set forth against the generation by baptism. So, baptism is not giving them eternal salvation. Only faith does that. But the baptism is separating them from the assembly of Israel in a visible outward way, setting them apart, and as such, they were not going to be condemned in A.D. 70. They would escape that judgment. How does baptism achieve that? Well, in the way it was perceived by the nation of Israel itself, to receive the baptism of John or to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in this case, of of Jesus was a repudiation of your Jewish faith. It was the equivalent of someone who would, in in political terms, renounce citizenship. So it was a recognized statement that all understood, all in the nation of Israel, to say, I have ceased to be a one who is under the law. I have ceased to be one who follows Moses in the sense that I I look to that as my salvation. I now understand the Messiah has come and I'm, I'm giving my allegiance to him in a public way. That separated you from the assembly. You would no longer be allowed in synagogues. You were often uh, disassociated entirely from your family. You were, you were a persona non grata in terms of, of Jewish society. You had divorced yourself from the Jewish culture that you were once a part of. That was what it took to separate yourself. If you weren't willing to do that, you could still be saved by faith. But you would also undergo the penalty of the A.D. 70 judgment, which was declared against the entire generation of, of Israel that rejected Christ in that day. That was a part of Israel when they rejected Christ that day. Look at what Peter himself says in the text. Peter says, forgiveness is available if they repent and are baptized. And then it says, he goes on exhorting them with various words, various statements to to those in the crowd. But look to what effect. What is his call for them at the very end of what I read in verse 40? Be saved from... This perverse generation. He's made the initial call, and so he continues to exhort, as this text says. And his argument seems to rest on who Christ is, why he is the Messiah, but then secondly, the urgency of receiving now this offer so that they can avoid the generational penalty that was coming upon Israel. As that judgment comes upon the nation of Israel in AD 70, it comes upon them in a very unique set of circumstances so that There's an early stage of Rome sieging the city, which then gives way to a period when the Roman army is gone for a short time and then returns. And in between those two times when they're there, there's an opportunity for people to leave the city. When the army comes back the second time and sieges it, that's the end. They never leave again and they eventually break through the walls and they kill every Jew that's in the city and take some slave. That's the judgment. But because there was a break in the action for a time, Any who were in the city and saw the first siege would have known this is the thing Jesus said was coming and they would have had a chance to run and leave the city when that opening took place. But the only ones who thought to do that were the ones who believed the words of Jesus when he said, when you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded, know that her end is near. Run to the mountains. Well, the only way you can run out of a city that's sieged is if the siege stops. And the only reason you'd run at that point is if you thought it was coming back. And the only ones who would have thought that way are the ones who received Jesus' words as truth and listened. So the faith in Christ and in his word was the means by which some in that city escaped, the remnant. All that stayed behind were lost. 
That's the judgment in AD 70 for that generation. So in Acts, every time we see baptism so closely associated with the message of salvation to a Jewish audience, you'll notice this at times as we go further in the text, every time we see the message of salvation being delivered to a Jewish audience in the time of Acts, it is always given in this unique way. Believe and be baptized in order to be saved. You will not see that same kind of urgency delivered in the epistles generally or to a Gentile audience generally. You'll notice that as we go through the text. This is one of those unique qualities to the early church, which, as I said at the outset of this course, is why we have to be careful about trying to make the book a recipe for what we do today in all cases. We have to look at it with very savvy understanding. On this day, to finish today, on this day, we're told 3,000 men received the testimony of God's word as it was preached through Peter. So the early church grows tenfold on that day. What happened, do you think, after all these men believed? Who were they? And particularly, in in the case of a good number of them, what, what kind of Jews? Or which Jews? They were foreign Jews, many of them, living outside the city. How uh, appropriate that God would choose this crowd on this day to be the starting point for the church in that his, his wisdom was already evident in the fact that these would be seeds of sorts going outward from the city. It's believed that from this very crowd you have the men who began the church in Rome that Paul later writes to when he writes his letter. Men he never met, a church he never visited when he wrote, which were Jews who came back from Pentecost with the message of the gospel all the way to Rome. And that's it. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. I thank you particularly, Father, tonight for the miracle of how the church was formed in the Spirit. I thank you, Father, that we today have the blessing of the indwelling of the Spirit, something so unique and special that you chose to mark it in a day that's like none other. How easily we take that for granted, Father, that we are specially marked with a power that many men and women would have envied in centuries past that is available to us every day should we yield to it and should we take hold of it. We ask you, Father, that the study as it's uh, unveiling itself to us would continue to to light a fire in our heart to spread the gospel, to preach out of your word if if you give opportunity, to know that preaching isn't merely reserved to to men and women who have a calling in a pulpit, but, Father, it's reserved. uh, It's not reserved at all. It's, It's available to us all. And we would be messengers in one form or another always with the right form, Father, always taking your word in the power of the Spirit and seeking to bring men to the truth. And uh, thank you again for this room, for our chance to meet here on such a reliable basis. We do pray we'd do that again next week. And perhaps, Father, you bring a few more who may be interested to hear your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.